0: She had three hearts, or rather she was meant to have. She knew it, she could feel it, could feel the piercing lack, though she did not know its name. She only knew that lack hung like bitter tapestries round the edges of even her earliest memories. The hearts of dryads grew from seeds in those days. Once. Tales said they had been born with their heart seeds already nested within, and any bit of earth would do for their growth. No longer. The lesser dryads of that time, empty chested, must go out from their homes like the banished of the earth and hope to find their heart seeds somewhere in the bewildering wideness of the world. Should they come upon their lost seeds, they must then walk through the death of each one in turn, for what grows without first dying? And finally, they must find their long way to the slopes of the summer mountain, whose soil alone still held the virtue of the earth in its youth and could bring their hearts to life. The journey was far and tiring and made no promises. Because of these things, few undertook it. But she did not know this when she was young. She did not know any of it. How could she, when no one told her the true tales?
1: And that was from the first chapter of The Flower of the Cedar, read by its author, Kay Ben-Abraham.
0: I was pointing out last time, that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self.
1: Welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour, where fans and scholars of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, Owen Barfield, and others discuss their works and lives. Increasingly, though, especially this season, we've been interviewing authors who have been influenced by the Inklings in some way. To me, this is entirely within the spirit of the Inklings as a group who were primarily a writing group grounded in the soil of great imaginative works as they planted and fostered their own seeds. I'm Chris Pipkin, occasional planter of trees, both actual and metaphorical. And with me today, I have Kay Ben-Avraham, author of The Flower of the Cedar, A Tale of Dryads from a Time Long Before Human History Began. Kay, it is wonderful to have you on the show. Thanks for coming.
0: It's such a pleasure, Christopher. This is this has been a delight already.
1: <laughs> so where are you joining
0: us from? I am joining us from the East Coast. It's a very sunlit day here and one of my favorite times of year when everything is beginning to warm again. I I tend to be like an eighty-year-old woman and cold all the time. So this weather is is a boon. <laughs>
1: uh yeah, well, I'm down here in Georgia where it's, it it is warm, but it has been warm. <laughs> and it always little, will be warm. <laughs> it, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a little, it feels a little less refreshing for, for the summer, except I am done with grading. I'm done with classes for the summer, which is always quite refreshing. Mm. So yeah, now I can spend the next, yeah, the next week, the next bit of free time interviewing wonderful authors who are being published through signum university press and specifically in, in your case quick beam books mm-hmm. now correct this is my understanding of of you know kind of the the process of your book so far but please like fill in gaps correct me as i'm as i'm wrong you you have already written one draft of this book correct that
0: is correct. Yes. Um,
1: and, and you published it in podcast form, which I, I really can't recommend highly enough to, to our listeners. If you, if you enjoyed hearing Kay read from her book, man, there's lots more where that came from. So please do, you know, check out, check out her podcast, but, but what you're doing now is really interesting. You're writing kind of a second version of that book with quick Beam books and undergoing kind of a, a, in some ways, like experimental sort of publishing process with, with Signum University Press and, and QuickBeam. Is that all, is that all accurate more or less? Is there, is, is there yeah. anything I misstated there?
0: No, you're, you're, you're on point. Yeah. It's really been a fascinating experience for me and I've, I've loved being like in on the ground floor because the press is just launching this year and I get to be like one of the first authors that they're working with to publish and so it's just it's just been such a fascinating experience like you said I did already self-publish this novel both in like you know paperback, ebook, audiobook and then as a podcast as well and that was its own like creative journey and experience but this is a new one and the press asked we'd love to republish your book and we could potentially overhaul it quite a lot if you want to work very closely with an editor and experience what that's like and so that's what I've what I've been doing and I'm rewriting it in pretty drastic ways actually <laughs> and doing so in a very communal setting like this this form of creative work is much more collaborative than anything i've experienced so far and that's mostly to do with how the press is has arranged their publishing platform they're kind of they're kind of reviving like dickensian methods of publishing where people get to follow an author's creation as it's coming out rather than after it's all been written and you're just getting the one final product. Instead, they do subscribers and you get, you know, drafts of what the author's working on as they're working. You get to, you know, give feedback. And in that case, like, it's it's often the case that the feedback dramatically influences the actual creation of the piece. And that's so cool to me. Like, I just, I, I love it. It's, I'm, I'm not hugely into the idea of individual genius as much as I am the experience of collaboratively creating with other minds and hands. It's, it's just, it's such an honor and it's really been cool to experience so far.
1: Yeah. That sounds fantastic. That's, yeah, that's, that's super cool. So, so you all have kind of writer's circle, right? right. And people pay a small amount, subscribe and suggest revisions as, as you kind of go. And as you, as you send them chapters, is that, is that more or less how it works?
0: Exactly. Yeah. There's, there's essentially like two tiers of subscription and support. There's kind of the lower, you know, like for maybe $2 or so per month, and you're getting the drafts in written or in audio form. But if you join an author's circle, that's, you know, a higher tier, about $25 a month. And for those, you're actually meeting with the author live every month and being much more involved and engaged in their process and in what they're you know, stuck on or yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's really that's that's just been amazing. That's that's the newest part of the experience for me. I've I've got a I've got an author's circle of some really dear friends. I know almost all of them. And we've just been meeting every month and they have been absolutely birthing new scenes and ideas that would not have emerged at all if it weren't for their existence and presence and involvement in this process. Um, that is so it's super just cool. Fascinating.
1: Yeah, and that that tracks so well with something we've kind of been emphasizing in this this podcast, partly inspired by Diana Pavlik glyers the company they keep, and and other kind of recent trends that have emphasized how the Inklings actually did influence each other. Right? Mm. Even even Tolkien was influenced. <laughs> That's but right. uh, yeah, just just the the idea that we we do you know, uh, creative works don't happen in a vacuum, and and we do write them for others, and and That's so right. it only makes sense that those others would be involved in 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 as you say, they're birthing, right? They're the, this this sort of process, but, but yeah, that's, that's wonderful. What are some of the, would you say most important revisions you've made as you, as you've kind of rewritten, if you can, if you can give those without spoiling too much.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Oh my goodness. Well, (laughs) I, oh, there's a lot to say about that. So I'll try to, I'll try to sum up. <laughs> the, the heart of the book in the first edition was much more concerned with the question of, I mean, I use dryads, but it, there it's a very almost allegorical flavor. You know, we are talking about human nature in this story and the heart of the book for the first edition was much more one of theodicy. At the time I wrote it, I was a a devout Christian. And I was very, I was very engaged with those ideas and wanted to speak to them in story form. And that has, that has changed since I wrote the story. And this new edition is shifting a good bit away from that and towards instead this found family relationship at the heart of the book, the two main characters, Lara and Jan. And it's beginning to have a lot more to do with... (sighs) Well, (laughs) I guess the way that I could put this is I, I came across... I came across a a quote from a, of all things, a trauma therapist named Bessel van der Kolk. And the quote is, if you feel safe and loved, your brain becomes specialized in exploration, play, and cooperation. If you are frightened and unwanted, and this is speaking like as a child, It specializes instead in managing feelings of fear and abandonment. And in this second edition of the book, I have been changing the lens from what is our duty to the divine? What is our relationship to the divine? To instead, what is our relationship to ourselves and one another and the world and our own hearts? And using this lens of sometimes how deep pain or trauma or abandonment or neglect can affect that. Hmm. And so I've been that's probably be one, been one of the most profound shifts. Yeah, I've, yeah that was fascinating you know, Yeah, I've removed whole characters there were there were characters who were in the first edition as a an act of personal homage. To people and events that I cared about, but who didn't truly belong in this story Mm -hmm, (laughs) that I've been just taking out and putting in my compost basket (laughs) (laughs) they may appear in other works later who knows let's
1: keep let's keep the plant metaphors coming by the way yes Um, (laughs) all all that all that we can have yeah
0: Um, I saw by the way you did you did that very nicely in the show introduction there I saw (laughs) all of the seeds and soil and it's like oh I see what you did there (laughs) (laughs) but yeah and then also also Serena my just glorious editor at the press. Mm-hmm. One of her first challenges to me was what if you make this a bit more dryadic,
1: <laughs> by the way, really quickly, as an aside, how close are you to finishing the second version? Is this a podcast that you want mm. to come out to encourage people to buy the finished thing or a podcast that you wouldn't want to come out to encourage people to join your writer circle?
0: Ooh, I would say, I would say the latter. Okay. To either purchase the like, you know, two dollar subscriptions where they're getting drafts,
1: mm-hmm.
0: or joining the author circle because it's probably going to be another like three quarters of a year uh-huh. before. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm, I'm laying down the the track as the train is going, and okay. that too yeah. is very. discovery writing (laughs) but
1: it's you know i mean you do you do have a base that you're working off of right even as even as you're altering and kind of making it better which is so i mean i have so much trouble revising whenever i do my own stuff i'm always like uh is this actually better than the thing that was there before you know and it's so yeah it's 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 so hard Uh, and it sounds like having a writer's circle would be great for Mm -hmm. that in Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, right? Because you get to see immediately whether it connects with an audience better or or not.
0: Right, Um, yeah.
1: Yeah, so Serena suggested that you make this more dryadic. Indeed. And one of the things that I really like about this book is that you are describing, it. it feels very... With, without in any way being less your own, it feels very mm-hmm. kind of like McDonaldish in, <sighs> in terms of its tone mm-hmm. rather than necessarily like Tolkienian, even though it's, mm-hmm. even though it takes up a lot of the same themes and obviously has some parallels that we can talk about with Tolkien, right. but, but it's so, you know, you mentioned it being like kind of allegorical or having mm-hmm. allegory mm-hmm. in it or whatever mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. it seems to be as much a journey mm-hmm. Or maybe even more a journey, an interior journey, right? As mm-hmm. as kind of like an external journey. And one of the things that's interesting about this is that you characterize dryads and and other creatures sort of sort of from the inside out, right? Like we mm-hmm. get a few mm-hmm. external details, at least in the version that I've read, and this may have changed a yeah. bit. But but so much of it is about healing and relationship and it's it's the the shift yeah the shift from the way like you know fantasy books are normally written right which is all about the kind of external quest you have some notes of like internal change and things like that but this is so much about her heart Mm -hmm. you know as as you say her heart's Right. Uh, but, uh, but, yeah, how do you how do you take I mean, you you do a fantastic job from what I've read of describing a dryad's experience from the inside and making it an alien but also familiar. How do you make it more dryadic?
0: Well, first of all, I just I just wanted to say, like, thank you so so much. For, like you're such an attentive, thoughtful reader, but yeah, as to your question, so, as i've been working with serena I, I i i decided to call it the book's mythic physics this this quality of well how does this element actually work and like to give it more attentive rigor in development before i write so for example something like the imagery of this summer mountain to which dryads must bring their heart seeds to come to life, or the fact that they are three-hearted rather than one. And I've been doing much more, (laughs) sitting down and making myself more strategically think through what does this actually connect to and how would that how would that work if if such and such happens or if that you know there's there's much there's more I think rigor is a good is a good word for it that's been the challenge for me the interiority of the quest is a feature of the story but like all like all gravities that we might have it has its pluses and minuses. And so when something is as interiorly focused, it can dip a bit too much into that. And there's some loss of tangibility, of palpability, of embodiment to the story. And that's what Serena and my author circle members have really been helping me to work with and sometimes it will be quite pointed you know they'll say in this scene i literally cannot picture what is happening i p- i uh-huh. need you to uh-huh. i need you to describe and explain and give me handholds mm-hmm. much more and so i will you know try to picture well what would what would a tree shooting up in an instant actually look like and i and i have to slowly think through and call upon sense memories to to craft a scene so it's been it's it's been stretching <laughs> to my capacities as a writer and i've just i've i've ended up doing a lot more tangible description of things like the heart seeds and like the types of plant life that is embodied by these dryad characters so i i like you said i as you know when we're revising our work we often can't even tell i don't even know if this is better than (laughs) the first version but i'm giving it my best and we will see what comes out the other end (laughs)
1: I should probably back up because I've I've kind of put the cart before the horse, and in some ways, and just ask you, what's your <laughs> book about? Many of our listeners, I'm sure, who who aren't familiar with it, how how would you kind of describe <laughs> it or pitch it or or whatever else?
0: Yeah. Oh, and may I say, just for for my own or anyone else's work, this is always the the thing that I find the hardest whether it's my own book or a book that I've loved, I always struggle to capture in an elevator pitch length. This is what this story tastes and feels like. Mm -hmm. It's almost almost like, well, you just, you want to say, oh, you had to be there. You just have to walk into that room and feel it on your skin. Like,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think particularly your book is so atmospheric and meditative, or at least the the version that I've encountered. Right, and I'm sure yeah. that trend continues because that just seems to. Oh be yeah, the, it's the, not going sort anywhere. Sort flavor of writing that you that you have. What about just and, and again, so much of this happens on the inside, right? Um, mm. But but just in terms of the of the plot, if you had to just kind of describe the plot to somebody who yeah. hadn't heard of it before. Yeah, how would you do that?
0: So I would say that this story is pastoral or metaphysical fantasy. I th- an atmospheric, I think, is a good word to describe the quality of the prose. And the story itself follows a young dryad named Lara, who is born into a bewildering and neglectful world and who is born knowing that there's something missing. There's some, there's some pain or lack or loss that she longs to find solace for and is unable to do so and is Leaving her home in a desire to find what's missing. And there is an actual, you know, physical element to this quest where she, you know, finds a companion. There's, there's a like a found family element to this story. And the quest itself takes place in an actual physical world. But like you said, it is a very, it's it's very heavily interior in terms of the healing the growth story itself and it's i think that for most readers it will be quite clear that this touches on the human heart and this is this is a story about us, even though I've clothed it in dryads and fantasy, this is a story about what it is like to be vulnerable and human and hurting in the world and to seek and perhaps find growth and healing. I think that's probably how I would characterize it. Yeah, yeah, that's
1: great. That's great. Yeah, in general, like let me just say, if listeners, if you like George MacDonald, you will really enjoy this book. It's 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 definitely. I mean, it reminds me of Lilith. It reminds me of Fantasties. It's yeah. It's just really the 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 attention paid to, at, as the character wanders. The attention paid to interior states and the way that those interior states are reflected and things that are happening in the landscape and in the sort of world that, that Kay has created is, yeah, it's 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 really well done. And it very much is of that flavor while like, again, being quite distinct, right? and And, and, and very much, very much your own. I don't know that I've read a book that's quite yeah, that I can, that I can easily compare to this. It's, it's, it's very unique. So you mentioned, you mentioned hearts already, right. Um, And, and dryad hearts and human hearts. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about them and especially the, the part that you read at the top of the show where you talked about sort of the fact that dryads have three hearts Mm -hmm. And I don't know if this made it into the revision, but you also talk about heart plants. Could could you could you give a little more detail about mm. the heart, in, both in terms of the way that dryad hearts are different from ours and whether they're similar?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes, that is one of the mythic physics elements that I have been working on the most to make more tangible than it was in the first edition. So I've been challenging myself this time to actually describe, you know, a heart seed as like this small bulb almost that dryads can take into themselves. And when their hearts are living, they are able to. So this is this is like a almost like a Tolkienian. Influence, I would say, you know how he characterized the elves as having this much more like embodied, connective relationship with the earth. Mm -hmm. You know, we have like Galadriel singing of trees of gold and trees of gold grow in response to her song. That's what I had in mind very much when I was picturing Dryads and their relationship to the green and growing world. And so, you know, that manifests differently depending on the individual dryad. For some, it is being able to grow a, a refuge tree in which people can take shelter or being able to grow a garden without needing soil or, you know, things, things like that. But I I picture and try to describe their hearts, heart seeds, the death of the seed, the bringing it to the summer mountain and bringing it to life as intentionally multi-phasal, multi-staged. <laughs> because this is where more of the allegory comes in to human nature or human experience, because my, my, my experience of life is one in which we don't go on one single quest and arrive at its conclusion. <laughs> right. We, we seem to proceed in spiraling, layers and it is it is a matter of again and again and more and deeper rather than just one single goal that we achieve and so i knew that when i created this story with a almost hero's journey element i needed there to be multiple phases to it there's not just yeah. one heart. There are several. And it's not just a matter of finding a heart, but first finding the seed of it. And it's not just a matter of finding that seed, but also of allowing that seed to die. And it's not just a matter of that, but also <laughs> a bringing you know, like yeah. there's that quality because at least in my own experience of life, that is what it has felt like. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. How do you, how do you then, because I think that's absolutely, yeah, that's, that's quite insightful. And that is the place where a lot of times stories can feel false, you know, mm-hmm. sort of the, and again, like keeping in bearing in mind that stories can't represent necessarily all of life, so I'm not right. like condemning fairy tales here and the happily ever after because I think they're <laughs> good. How do you how do you sustain a sense of suspense or or a sense of investments if they're like with it? Because I, I I don't know even with some of some of the modern shows that complicate that sort of dynamic, right? Where you're mm-hmm. where where they're kind of like okay yes, they win this. And then this horrible thing happens to them and then (laughs) they lose and then they win, you know, and, and after a while I get tired of seeing my favorite characters die in in the show. Right. And I just kind of, I just kind of opt out and I'm like, okay, no more walking Dead for me, you know? So, (laughs) so how do you, how do you sustain investment? I guess is maybe a better word than suspense throughout the kind of, ups and down and, and hills mm. and troughs and, and things.
0: Mm. Mm. What a great question. <laughs> and I actually want to just give that like a humble, vulnerable answer, which is, I don't know that I will be able to honestly. I, I think that, I think that that is a challenge that I'm not sure that I'm equal to creatively. I, I think that our hunger for story, for narrative, and for meaning is something so deeply laid within us. And I've often experienced it to be out of step with the reality of life, that life often leaves us hungering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For closure and for like, and and often I think that is why we write story with the types of much more tidy arcs that we give to most of our stories. Mm -hmm. I, I honestly don't know if it will work to side a bit more with reality and Mm -hmm kind of push or strain <laughs> that natural hunger we have for the single quest that comes to a an orchestral conclusion. Right. And right. I, you know, I think that I look at people like Tolkien who somehow, at least to my mind... Yeah hit both of these things like he he creates you catastrophic orchestral endings and then gives us the scouring of the Shire for another like 60 right. pages and I'm so here for it I'm yeah like, you know yeah
1: I know <laughs> I know well maybe it helped that he was writing for a distinct group of people right there um, we go so so maybe yeah as you as you write for them that will become more. Mm. And, and, you know, part of the reason I asked, it's not cause I'm sensing like any trouble in the first version of this, that, that I'm, you know, kind of going mm. through so much as like for myself, that's really hard to do. yeah <laughs> So yes. it was, it was not, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's just more kind of like, well, how, how as a writer do you, do you pull this off? Mm. Cause it seems, yeah yeah, it's, it's tough.
0: Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, I think we could also say, not all stories will work or resonate with all readers. You know, like yeah. I, you've used the word atmospheric to describe the book, which is wonderful because that's exactly the type of fiction and of writing that I myself enjoy. Yeah. I don't tend to be drawn to quote unquote page turners. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, not a universal desire, you know, as a reader. Um, So, you know, I think I do end up creating the kind of content that I myself love to take in and there will be others out there who also love it, but there will be others who don't and who are like, wow, I think this is moving really slowly and I'm going to use it to help me fall asleep at night (laughs)
1: well I mean it's it's funny because you know again your book has an almost I mean this in in the sort of high praise has a has a very 19th century quality to it right in Mm. terms of like people wrote for audiences that could deal with complexity and nuance and interior states of mind and landscape Mm -hmm. descriptions and, 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 you know, and, and things Mm -hmm. like that. I I was talking with another author, Jonathan Geltner a few months ago, and he was just talking about, you know, how important description and especially landscape description Mm -hmm. is to evoking another world to evoking Mm -hmm. fantasy and how so many, fantasy audiences as well as probably publishers don't have patience and how that can rob us of being affected deeply by, Mm. by these other sorts of states of being states of mind. And and I, I think yours definitely, you know, it's, it's going to matter more what happens to your character. Mm. Yeah because you're asking for a, a higher investor investment up yeah. front from your reader, which is, I think, I think very good. And I I get out of patience with, you know, a lot of modern fantasy, uh, you know, as much as I'm like, if I want to publish anything, I better learn to write in this. style. Oh, but, uh, all right. but, yeah. but also, but, but also, you know, kind of mourning, even in movies, honestly, like if you compare, yeah. you know, Oh yeah. Star Wars episode 4 there are these long establishing shots and you feel yes. a sense of the place and then with Abrams attempt where things are whizzing everywhere and you yes. know action 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 you know and you just don't feel like there's
0: anything deep there. Exactly, exactly. Oh god, I love that you brought that up because that's 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 the exact like aesthetic that I am constantly feeling when I watch movies and TV shows these days. I always feel as though I was born in the wrong century. Like it just, I'm like, I would have stayed on that shot for another 20 minutes. Uh And Thank you.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: But they only gave me two seconds.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So we should probably talk about, talk about your book some more. So the summer Mountain. Yeah. Is another, at least in the, in the version again, that, that I've been reading, the summer mountain is a very mm-hmm. important thing, a very important place in some ways, you know, in, in similar ways to the motif or, or the idea of the heart. What is the summer mountain?
0: Mm-hmm. So, you know, in, in Tolkien's mythology, <laughs> He is much more medieval and and earlier in the sense that he's envisioning a world which is in decline. Mm-hmm. And that is almost the precise opposite of the unquestioned underpinnings that we tend to have in modern, most modern, you know, philosophical traditions Yep, of sort of upward progress and, you know, so this this is a story that is based more in that lens of decline and i i am envisioning a a world in which there were once old dryads the type that we think of in our myths where they are the spirits of trees And there is this, like, just union at the heart of their being. And I'm envisioning it where, like, the earth itself was once this naturally generative, connected experience of union. And that is no longer the case. There is less and less of the earth that has the capacity to bring a dryad's hearts to life. And there's, you know, an allegorical or metaphorical resonance to that in our human nature. I think we we have a feeling of the loss of connection to almost like a a pre-verbal oceanic oneness that we used to know and long to return to so it has that it evokes that but it also has a a tangible reality in the story itself so the summer mountain is an actual physical place whose soil is still still holds those qualities of what the entire earth used to so almost like a like a wildlife preserve or something like that where we've mm-hmm. lost so much of our you know biodiversity and ability to sustain what once was but there are these little these little islands these little you know havens that remain but they are becoming fewer and fewer and they are harder and harder to access so that's sort of the idea of what the summer mountain is.
1: Yeah, that's really beautiful. It, it, it you, you describe it in terms of at least I forget if you do it in the new prologue, but I know in the in the original introduction you sort of compare it with Eden and Avalon mm. and 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 things like that. But it's it's a place where um in, in the kind of dryadic experience it's it's a place where you need to like that's where you plant your heart yes. is that is that correct and then yeah. the heart grows from mm-hmm. that okay yeah yeah, yeah. that's cool but It's very again this is the English variety hours, so obviously we're going to <laughs> it's very it, it reminds me of the magician's nephew right where mm. you can plant things and it's this sort of it's the sort of Eden of that world yes. right where where things just grow right yes and, uh, yes yeah i love that that's
0: yeah oh yeah that that entire aspect of of narnia has absolutely been in the compost that i've been working with yeah (laughs) in this story i always found that so evocative the way that he wrote that portion
1: yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah, so talking a, a little more about the about the world itself in the in the prologue in, in the in the this version is it also set in the fourth age?
0: Mm, yes, I have had a lot of fun with just kind of imaginatively making some room for my own story within the structure of Tolkien's Legendarium. And I've mostly done that by pretending that with the, you know, age of the elves, there was also a time of dryads before men became predominant. And so I've kind of invented that little, you know, (laughs) I'm picturing this as a silly image but I'm picturing like you know pulling out the dining room table and adding another leaf like (laughs)
1: uh-huh uh-huh yeah (laughs)
0: and that's that's kind of what I've what I've done here you know there's there was another race that similarly to the elves was was born came to its zenith and then eventually faded and gave way to another and so in this we have overlap where There still are elves, but they have also almost all withdrawn. And then, with the old dryads that become what are called the late dryads, which are much more like humans, there is a there's already been like a falling away, a diminishment, and eventually, our own race with its illness of domination and hierarchy ends up eradicating variety and becoming the only present race and there are no longer dryads now in the world Mm. and that's why you know yeah so that's sort of the you know whimsical just because it amuses me (laughs) Mm -hmm. structuring Mm -hmm. that i've used for the story
1: no i love that i love i I love that you lean into the you're you're like oh yeah i'm I'm influenced by Tolkien, of course, <laughs> um, and here's, you know, it's, it's really, it's actually really refreshing. And I like that you are in a way opening up the Tolkien's Tolkien's world and, and elaborating on it and, and making it, you know, the story is absolutely your own. It's very much your own. It doesn't read like Tolkien. It reads like mm. K. Ben Avraham, mm. right? But it's 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 really fun how you take You know, some of these basic events and some of this basic framework that Tolkien posits before human history and just kind of, like you said, stick in your own leaf. So are you by any chance answering the question of what happened to the Entwives or are the Entwives different?
0: (laughs) Oh, God. ah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> to be fair, I would hate to profit off of the deep and marvelous curiosity that Tolkien awakened with the Entwives. It still lives within me and and certainly this book will not you know, answer or put put an end to that curiosity. But I do love the idea. I wouldn't say that I worked it too consciously into the story, but in the second edition, I have enjoyed trying to make more connections, especially in the prologue to both Tolkienian and like quote unquote real world things. And one of the elements I've dropped in there is the idea that old dryads didn't record stories on paper because of course that's made from tree bark that's like terrible cannibalistic of them, you know, and that we only have the only records of, of their stories were actually in living trees in the gardens of Alexandria that were lost when the library burned. And I, Oh, that is cool. (laughs) I have been, privately in my own head canon, imagining that those were the Entwives, that they the Ents themselves were incorrect in their characterization of what the Entwives were after and that all they cared about was making sure that they had control and security and everything that they planted stayed where it was put and they could, you know, have this lovely predictable thing. But that in fact these were these were old dryadic beings who were trying to preserve the stories of their race. And they did so by going to this specific place and hmm. establishing these gardens, these orchards, but that it, it doesn't really, that's really fun. figure into the that. story. It's just yeah. like, you know, a line or right. two in the prologue. So. Right. <laughs>
1: wow, that's great though. Uh, zooming back out, how long has, how long, sorry, how long has the, has the book been in development? Um, like when did you conceive of this book and because it's so i mean even even the first draft or whatever it Mm -hmm. it feels like you have had this story in your mind for a very long time and you have been meditating on it and thinking about it because there's just so much that's so yeah there there's there's so much thought into everything that happens in the story and yeah is, is this something that you kind of like grew up thinking about is there a certain point at which you started developing this story like when did the seed of the story happen
0: ooh great question you know how you know how lewis said that narnia for him did not begin with like ooh how can i put jesus into a fantasy world right but instead began with this image of a lamppost and a fawn and the falling snow so for me it was reading as a teenager tolkien's on fairy stories and coming across that quote from the tale of the two brothers actually from which this book is has taken its title the quote about like i shall enchant my heart and i shall mm. place it at the top of the flower of the sea yeah. oh god i the it just I can't explain it. Like that quote and its imagery arrested me on a level below language. Hmm. It's, it's as though it just directly dropped into and enchanted my imagination. And that I would say was the seed. It wasn't until though, like, it wasn't until I was in college, I was taking, I was taking a class with a really evocative poetry professor, and she would have us do writing prompts sometimes. And one day in class, the sentence, she had three hearts, just floated into my mind. Hmm. And I began writing it with this imagery from the quote of like a heart that is is hidden or inaccessible in some way and has to go through a process before it is recovered actually would it be helpful for me to read the whole well it's not a Tolkien quote but the whole tale of two brothers quote here
1: if if you yeah absolutely
0: yeah please do
1: please do I Yeah. yeah I love that that was so just kind of, because for me, like when I hear those stories, I'm like, oh yeah, it's the motif of like the heart that you can, you know, displace and, and store somewhere so that it's not, yes. you know, like there's-
0: It's Harry Potter, giant- yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 or, or, <laughs> right, or like right. the
1: giants and the other fairy tales or whatever, but I love that you took it in this direction. Yeah, please mm-hmm. do read it.
0: Yeah. So the quote is, I shall enchant my heart and I shall place it upon the top of the flower of the cedar. Now the cedar will be cut down, and my heart will fall to the ground. And thou shalt come to seek it, even though thou passed seven years in seeking it. But when thou hast found it, put it into a vase of cold water, and in very truth I shall live. Hmm. Ugh. <laughs> it just... It just moves me. <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh, that's so super it's cool. Been,
0: yeah. It's been like 20 years.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it is, it is such a, it is such a thoughtful work, at least the version that I have, mm. you know, and I'm sure, the, I'm sure the next version even more so that, that it, it just seems like something that has been, you know, cultivated to take mm. another metaphor right? for a very <laughs> long time. Nice. So we're running. We're running uh, about running out of time. I want to know if you have a favorite book about trees besides besides this one that you've been, you know, that's that's mm. been in in some ways your life's work. Yeah. Do, do you do you have any books about trees that you really enjoy or, or that move you? And if if not, we can cut this part. But I, I was just curious.
0: <laughs> you know, I do although I suppose I should include the caveat this particular book is is very little like mine and I also only recently discovered it this year but it's called The Overstory by Richard Powers Yeah. it was published in 2018 are you familiar with it
1: I've heard of it I haven't yet dipped into that but
0: oh but yeah. yeah I I I can already tell I'm going to be rereading this one multiple times. And it is a, it is a slow burn that will absolutely wreck you. (laughs) Mm. It's, it's a piece of environmental fiction. And I would say it's kind of like a, a, both a love letter to forests, to the natural world, but also a warning cry to us, to humanity. And it's also, uh, I don't know how to, how to put this, but like wildly original and imaginatively evocative. He connects dots and asks questions that I have never thought of before. And I love encountering that in a story so it's it's really oof. it's a magnum opus, I think, and i've I've really enjoyed it a lot. But yeah, it's very it's certainly not like, you know, if you like this, try this. <laughs>
1: Well, Kay Ben-Avraham, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your beautiful book. And and I'm excited to read the next version. Where can my listeners go if they want to join your writer's circle?
0: Mm, Yes, I would say the easiest place to direct them would be my website, which is K K A Y. Ben Avraham, that's b e n a v r a h a m dot com, and that landing page has all of the possible links that they would need. There's you know places to listen to the original podcast, places to buy the first edition. There's links to the Signum University Press project, the second edition I'm working on now. They can sign up to be a subscriber for the $2 or so a month, or they can join the author circle for $25 a month and be a part of the live process. And all of those links are on my page, as well as a contact form in case they want to connect with me directly. So I think that would be the best place to point them to.
1: All right. Wonderful. Well, if you have enjoyed hearing about this project, I think you would probably really enjoy being part of the creation of Kay's work, The Flower of the Cedar. Kay, thank you again so much for, for joining us. And, and listeners, thank you for joining us as well, and we'll see you next time.
0: All blessed encounter full of joy, unscheduled on the decent fan, with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams stand.